Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. 
It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. So two quick things before we get into today's episode. First, the compass, which I know you have heard me mention endlessly for the last several months. Well, it is almost finally here. It's launching this Saturday. You can learn more about it at theinstigatorscompass.com. If you enter your email address, we will shoot you a note right when it is available to download and you'll be able to download it for free. And I also want to remind you about our sponsor for this quarter of the Unmistakable Creative. It's an app called Oddvisor. And Oddvisor is like having access to the best wisdom imaginable from former Unmistakable Creative guests, except the wisdom isn't as long as one of our podcasts. So if you're short on time and you want to listen to short three-minute insights from experts like Seth Godin, Pamela Slim, Sally Hogshead, and hundreds of others, you have access to this very cool app. So imagine if you had the best nuggets in all sorts of different areas, storytelling, communication, how to grow your career, productivity, and you're able to get it all in an app and listen to useful insights in just three minutes. In a lot of ways, it's kind of like having Pandora, but for business advice. And the really cool thing is the app is completely free. You can learn about it at oddvisor.com. That's www.oddvisor, A-U-D-V-I-S-O-R.com. It's completely free. And of course, as I mentioned before, when you support the sponsors, you actually help support the show a lot. So let our friends at Oddvisor know what you think about the app. And uh, now let's get into what today's episode is about. In this episode of the show, I catch up with Dave Vanderveen, founder of the energy drink company Excess. It's a really fascinating conversation. And we talk about building a foundation to becoming your best self, running your life on values instead of grand strategies, and uncovering the progression of truth over the course of your life. It's one of those episodes that will really, really make you think, and you'll likely have to listen to it more than once to get everything you can out of it. So now let's get to the episode. Dave, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yes, Rini, thanks for having me on. I'm really, uh, really fired up to be here tonight. Yeah, so, you know, I actually came across you by way of a, a rather serendipitous sequence of events, uh, w- which is really, really funny because it goes almost all the way back to when I appeared on Glenn Beck and uh, the friend and, and now business partner uh, who has been you know, referring guests uh, basically told me about you because you sent him a copy of, of my interview with Glenn Beck, and he basically found my book, and now he and I are, are working together and the best of friends, uh, awesome. which is really, really interesting. So on that note, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, your story, your journey, your background, and how that has brought you to the work that you do and what you're up to in the world today? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, for me, you know, I, I guess uh, I'm, a, I'm a bit of an amateur cosmologist, so I really like to think about, think all the way back, like, where did it all start and how does that relate to me? Um, you know, there's all kinds of people fighting wars all over the world based on religion or not wanting to have religion in their lives. And I think we're all kind of missing the point when it comes to that. I think there's, you know, there was a singularity with amazing power that started everything. And I think the ultimate question is how do we relate to the universe? For me, it kind of started um, 
you know, as a, as a kid being raised, I'm a Dutch American, um, born American. My family is, uh, you know, some com- combination of Dutch immigrants from different points in time and, and my wife's as well. Um, but we're raised in this culture that's, that's steeped in kind of what, you know, with the traditional Protestant work ethic. That's, uh, you know, it's got a religious component to it. I, I don't, you know, belong to that church anymore, but it's the Dutch Christian Reformed Church, very kind of Calvinistic in, in, the, in the old school concept of it, not the it's kind of a new fundamentalist version I'm not very fond of at all. But the, uh, you know, so it's this kind of um, very uh, academic, very thoughtful, very analytical uh, religion that's based, you know, heavily based in catechism and, and theology and philosophy. And, um, and so I was raised in that, and I was raised in West Michigan. My father's a surgeon. My mother was a nurse. We had six kids. Um, so big family, uh, you know, smart parents who loved us, and I can't really fault them for much of anything besides uh, <laughs> giving us too much. Uh-huh. But, um, but, you know, but, but they pushed us pretty hard. And, and one of the great things that my parents did, even though we had kind of – the great thing about the Dutch in general, you know, I spent a lot of time in the Netherlands now. One of my friends who I went to high school with – in Holland, Michigan, uh, <laughs> went to Holland Christian High School where you could literally get a varsity letter for clomping dancing, for wooden shoe dancing. Um, but this, this kid I went to high school with ended up going back to the Netherlands. His mother had immigrated. And uh, he's a city council member in Amsterdam now. And, and the funny thing about the Dutch is they're very tolerant people. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that word gets confused. Um, you know, from if you talk to my parents, we have a very clear, like my parents have a very, very clear idea about what they believe. But they're not fussy, right? They're mm-hmm. particular. They know what they believe, but they don't try and make everyone else believe it. And so they're, they're very comfortable, and I think the Dutch in general historically have been very comfortable um, with, with knowing what they believe and, and allowing other people to live around them who have very different ideas um, that don't offend them because they don't – You know, the cool thing about – you know, I don't know if you've heard some of the stuff I've done with Pete Holmes, but Pete makes fun of me because we were surfing one day, You know, the comedian Pete Holmes. We were surfing one day, and, and – uh, and I said, you know, I said to him, uh, you know, people say they believe in the sovereignty of God, that God kind of, you know, controls the universe, whatever, but they don't act like it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think the great thing about growing up in kind of that, that kind of Dutch trajectory is, is this, you get this worldview where um, you don't have to take yourself that seriously because you realize pretty quickly if you pay attention to what they're trying to teach you that it doesn't depend on you. Um, you know, you don't have to be a messiah. You don't have to save the world. Um, you know, you should care deeply about other people and try and try and, and, and help everyone along as well as yourself. But at the end of the day, um, you know, if there is this great power of the universe that, that exploded the singularity into the constantly expanding universe we, 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 we live in, you know, it's really nice to align yourself with that power and participate in it, but it probably doesn't need you to, to, to be successful. And, um, and so, you, you know, it gives you, I, I think if you really embrace that, it gives you this great relief that um, really all you have to do is, is find and figure out how to harness that energy. Mm-hmm. And your life can be an amazing dance and, and kind of wrestling uh, uh, contest that teaches you, you know, everything you really need to know. Um, and that's where surfing came in. Uh, for me, surfing is kind of that, that existential expression of of finding the power in the universe and participating in it you, know, you, you can't battle the ocean you can't fight the ocean you can't you can't win against a wave you can only learn to to harness a piece of it and participate in it and if you can learn to do that elegantly and beautifully you'll have the most amazing experience of your life 
Um, I used to write a, a, a column for, for Surfer Magazine, People Who Surf. We lived in Northern California for about eight years. And uh, there was a guy I interviewed up in, he lived in Santa Cruz. His name was uh, Dave Schmidt, the Birdman in the column, Richard Schmidt's brother, a uh, big wave surfer. And uh, he was one of the first guys to surf, one of the first guys, um, you know, after Mavericks was discovered, just to start surfing there. And uh, he, um, when I did this interview with him, and I think it was in like 93, he, you know, he was raised in this Lutheran background, kind of left those roots, but, but still kind of had some of that, that, that foundation. And he said, you know, he said, power doesn't come from having power everywhere, but knowing where to put it on. And, you know, kind of the whole point of riding big waves, whether you're YMA or Mavericks or wherever the heck you are riding up north, um, you learn really quickly. You have to learn how to participate in what's going on around you and not get caught not get caught on the wrong side of it. And, uh, you know, th- those kind of things I think are pr- fairly profound when you're actually doing it. Maybe sounds a little cheesy if you're on the other side of it. But, but uh, yeah, so I, for, for me, I mean, those were kind of the big broad strokes that I was raised in that really helped me um, kind of give me perspective on, on the world. And it kind of shaped uh, where I went. I guess, you know, early on uh, uh, I figured that, you know, the world's not as big as we think it is. And, you know, we can choose to live wherever we want. We can choose, you know, the reality that we want to participate in. And uh, if Deepak Chopra is right and the universe is a reflection of our consciousness, it really comes down to what universe do you want to live in and uh, start being conscious and deliberate about creating it. And that's, that's where I've spent most of my time. Hmm. Wow. Okay. So there's yeah, I mean, just the beginning part of this. There's so much here. We haven't even really talked about your career. Uh, yeah. You know, I want to ask you something, you know, in terms of cultivating our capacity for these types of things. One of the things that you said that really is uh, of tremendous personal interest to me, and you heard the interview with Seth Godin, so you know I asked him this question. You talked about this idea of not taking yourself too seriously. And, you know, that's such a, it, it's interesting because it's such a big contrast from the culture that I grew up in, where everything was so damn serious. Right. From the time that I could literally get a letter grade, I felt that I was being permanently recorded um, and everything. <laughs> it's was, on your permanent record, right? Oh, I mean, I, I think I remember <laughs> conversations in the sixth or seventh grade about where I would go to college and what I would do for a living. Um, it had all been predetermined. And I nowhere near. I didn't go to college to any of the places that were on that list, and I definitely didn't end up doing any of those things for a living. But th- the interesting thing to me is the challenge you know that i have personally struggled with and i don't think i'm alone in this is finding that balance between taking our work seriously um but not personally and also not taking ourselves so seriously and and how we cultivate a capacity to be able to do that yeah i mean i think you know one i think you have to live lightly right so um it's important to be deliberate mm-hmm. like i think it's really important um in no matter what you're doing and that's why i, I love like serious adventure. I love, you know, starting companies or, or organizations that have a, a purpose and a cause and a direction. Um, because I think living deliberately is really important, but I think where, and you know, you see this cause I know you surf as well. You, mm-hmm. you know, you see this in the water a lot where, where part of the, the joy of being in surf, which is so, can be so chaotic. Like today was just this wacky blown out windswell. And I, I kind of love the victory at sea days as much as I love, uh, perfect sheet glass days mm-hmm. um, because, because it's, it's that, that chaos. It's finding order in that chaos that gives life meaning. Um, 
you know, if you follow, if you read any of the existentials, I'm going to this great Pete Rollins conference in Belfast in the middle of, of April, which is all these, you know, dynamic existentialist philosophers. And, you know, the great existentialist philosophers, you would think that they're these depressed people because they talk about despair and how life has no meaning and all these things that seem very horrific, you know, Sartre kind of staring into the abyss. Um, but ultimately, I think Camus got it right where, where you know, the, the world looks very chaotic and it looks like um, it doesn't have a lot of meaning. And, and our role as humans and what makes us unique is our ability to put meaning into it. Mm-hmm. You know, waiting for God is like waiting for Godot in a lot of ways. You can't just sit there and hope that something's going to happen to you. You have to act. And I think like one of the great... Um, one of the great Dutch proverbs is pray to God but row toward shore. You know, I mean, yeah, there, you know, let's, let's all play pretend and believe that there is this God, and I actually do. Um, but if you wait for God to do it for you, you're kidding yourself. You mm-hmm. have to do something God can't steer a parked car. And so I think for me, there is this kind of, this, this kind of cosmology or this, this uh, you know, this whole structure of the universe that says, look, I'm going someplace, and I'm going there fast. I mean, our planet, right? This is just looking at the cosmos. I mean, the solar system we live in is essentially a big comet going at 70,000 miles an hour away from that singularity, Mm -hmm. right? And we're just, the planets are basically tails that are just spinning around it. It doesn't look like that when we see it in school books, but when you actually look at it in the context of the universe, you know, we're on this big spaceship heading somewhere fast. And I think that progression is fundamental to our existence and our participation in that progression is what ultimately gives meaning to life. And so the, the thing that, you know, somebody just, somebody posted something on Facebook today. If you could, if you could go back to your, you know, whatever your, yourself 20, you know, whatever your, your distant self and say two, two words to your distant self, what would you say? And, and mine was do shit, you know, <laughs> um, just, just get out there. When I went to college in a, a small conservative college in the Midwest, uh, Wheaton College, it's a conservative Christian school. Um, and my freshman year, I met this guy named Bronk, who was, um, you know, at Wheaton. This was in the in the eighties and the late eighties. You know, at a Christian college back then, nobody could admit they were gay if they were. Um, Bronk was about six feet, you know, four or five. It still is, as far as I know. Uh, we actually stay in touch. But, you know, six feet, four or five, um, big guy, tall, lanky, and extremely effete, right? Just just really, really, uh, really effete. And, and so his nickname was Bronk because he was this big guy, but, you know, but not terribly masculine. And, um, and like, come on, we all knew Bronk was gay, but we couldn't admit, even Bronk couldn't admit that he was gay back then. I mean, ultimately, he figured it out, and, and you know, probably a little later than the rest of us. But the, the thing that, that, that I love about him, and, you know, here I went to this great Christian college, one of the top Christian colleges in America. Um, one, of the, one of the things I love about my relationship I had with him was he taught me, he would do things like he would create a parade. He, he did the Bronx Parade where he would go down to the city hall, organize a parade permit, get the police cars, get everyone to show up and have this parade as chapel was coming out in his own honor with all these friends of his participating <laughs> in it. Um, or he would have the Bronx Banquet um, where he would literally organize a banquet. It was like kind of a talent show slash banquet where everyone dressed up in you know these clothes you would find at Goodwill. Kind of a crazy, fun, just insane evening. Um, and, and literally, he would wake up in the morning and just decide that he was going to do something, and then he would just go and do it. And he would do it with so much enthusiasm 
and so kind of deliberately and, and eccentrically and with so much fun and joy that you couldn't resist it. You had to join in. Mm-hmm. And as a freshman, seeing that and just going, holy shit, you can wake up in the morning and just create a parade in your own honor, <laughs> right? It just gives you so much freedom to say, wow, I can pretty much do anything I want. And then the question becomes, what do I want? Uh-huh. You know, and I think, so I think one, I don't think most people actually ask that question seriously. I don't, two, I don't think most people write it down on a piece of paper in any, in any you know, meaningful way. Mm. And three, I don't think people put mechanisms in their life that force them when they're making those little daily decisions that ultimately end up in, you know, where you end up in life. They don't, they don't force themselves to really say, wait a minute, is this bringing me closer towards the things I really truly want in life or is it making me, is it pushing me further away? Mm-hmm. And what, what Bronk kind of gave me was this, this idea that, you know, we do have the capabilities inside ourselves, whether you have any money or not, just by the, just by the, by the, you know, the, the, your ability to, to put power into decision and act on it to really shape what you want to do. It doesn't mean everything's going to work out. It doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect. You know, certainly a lot of things fail, but we have the ability to make choices that gives us wealth and we have the ability to act on them. And that's where we learn. Uh, I think we learn more from failure than success a lot of times. But it's, it's that getting over the hump of, well, what if it doesn't work? What if people laugh at me? What if people don't like it? What if people think I'm crazy? Who cares? They don't really think about you anyways. You're the only one that thinks about you. Just go do the things you think you really want to get accomplished in life. All right. So there's, I mean, you just basically opened up a whole landmine of, of, you know, questions, uh, that, that whole thread. Uh, interestingly enough, as, as you're describing this guy to me, I'm thinking this guy sounds like, you know, the Van Wilder of the eighties. Right. Yeah. He was in a lot of ways. Let me ask you this, knowing what you know about a human being like that, and all of us listening to that, knowing that we could go and organize a parade in our own honor every day or do something of that sort of just audacity, what do you think keeps people from doing that? Like, why do we even not consider that as a possibility? Um, I think it's two things. I think mostly, well, it depends on the person, right? Everyone's a little different. I think fear is a huge, um, a huge issue for most people. Most people have to learn. I had to learn this. I'm not a, you know, we have to learn to to scare ourselves a little day, a little bit every day, and embrace that, right? Mm-hmm. You really, actually enjoy the fear. Not so much that it freezes us, but you know, draw that circle of whatever that your comfort zone is and just push yourself, you know, find ways to push yourself outside of that every single day. Do something that you're like, oh, I don't know if I should do that and do it anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, not something that's going to kill you, but something that's going to just, you know, push you over the edge of what you think is possible. We are capable of so much more than we do and we all know it, right? I, I know it. We all know that we can do a lot more. The fact is we're mostly afraid of, of, of what might happen if it doesn't work or people don't like us or something you know, negative occurs because we act. But at the end of the day, I, you, you rarely meet somebody that was like, man, I, you know, I, just, I just did way too much stuff in my life. <laughs> Most people are <laughs> like, I wish I would have done this stuff. I wish I would have acted. There was that girl. There was that, you know, that business I could have. There was that investment. There was... You know, there was, I, I really wanted to dance, whatever it is. I wanted to paint. I wanted to learn to play a ukulele or a violin or play a hockey, I, whatever that is. I want to learn to surf. Do it. It doesn't matter. You know, so naturally the brain will go to, well, yeah, but you're 46. Yeah, but you're, you're 25. People have been doing this for years are really good at it and you're not. 
doesn't matter. It's not about them. It's about you. It's about expanding yourself and finding, just draw a line in the sand and say, tomorrow I'm going to try something I've never done before. My dad says to me, you know, he said, look, we lived, you know, we, my parents live in a small town in West Michigan. He's a head and neck surgeon. Um, but he went to Johns Hopkins, great medical school. We lived, you know, growing up in D.C. and Baltimore and Detroit and, and ended up in West Michigan. Um, but he said to me, he goes, you know, David, he goes, every day change things. He goes, I shave a different part of my face to start every day. He said, I drive home from work a different way every day. He said, we have to keep changing those channels in our brains because if we don't do that, we will get stuck in rhythms that we don't necessarily want. And I think those, you know, those kind of things, I don't think my dad even thought about it when he said it to me. It was like a passing thought while we were driving in the car. Mm -hmm. But it's stuff that just stuck with me. And I was like, wow, no one, you know, you're a kid, you see all your other friends, nobody else does that. You're like, okay, my parents are kind of weird, but I I think that kind of makes sense. And, um, and, and those kind of things, they, you know, they, they stick with you when, when I was at Wheaton, um, Bronk, you know, my freshman year basically said, you know, even though we're in a very restrictive school, we had to sign a pledge that said you can't drink, dance, smoke, fornicate, gamble, you know, what, I can't remember everything else, but, uh, you know, a long list of no's. And what we turned that into, I, I got tired of all that pretty quickly, like after about a week. And, um, and in fact, my parents, they wanted me to go there because it was such a good school and I got in. But they had a kind of an over-under bet with one of their friends about how long I would last because it really wasn't the way I was built or raised. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we created our own secret society called the Church of Reason when I was at Wheaton. And I was a philosophy major and a poli-sci major. I had two majors. And, uh, and you know, a big part of what we, were, what we were doing there was saying, you know, people have built these temples to science and temples to analytical thought. Um, and they are wonderful. They've changed our lives. But that's not how we really live. 90% of the, of the choices we make, who you're going to marry, where you're going to live, what kind of car you're going to drive. I mean, almost everything that matters, the major you pick in school for most people has nothing to do with truly analytical thought. Most of us make emotional decisions and then we rationalize them. Mm-hmm. And so we were, we, were, we were very satirical. We would kind of mock these things. We had our own political party. We would run candidates in elections. You know, it's kind of Bronk inspired this stuff in us through epic parties, which were completely illegal at the school. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I just said, you know, I said, look, we have signed this pledge and we are going to get called in the principal's office, essentially, the head, you know, the, the, the dean's office. So why don't we just write an alternate pledge that supersedes the pledge we wrote? We'll all sign that one. And when they ask us if we kept the pledge, we can say, yes, we did, even though it's not the pledge they're thinking of. And so it worked for about three years at Wheaton. Eventually, they kicked me out because we <laughs> were taking over elections. And, you know, I was editing the school paper and running the student union. Um, but the, uh, and we had this whole secret society thing going on. But the coolest thing that happened, I got kicked out for, we started us a, 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 a um, underground newspaper called the Ice Cream Socialist. And I had a poem in there about surfing that was fairly sexual that, um, that they didn't like. And so that's what they threw me out for. And it became national news. We did a big uh, public. We did a big rally at the school where you know we uh, had parchment copies of the Constitution, American flags, copies of Kafka were fly- floating around. But the um, you know the point was to to say, look, we have a right to self expression. We have a right to self determination. We have a right to to the, fu- the the fundamental freedoms that govern our lives. That's what a liberal arts education is about. It became, you know, my parents found out because they saw it on WGN TV. <laughs> um, you know, we were in the New York Times. And, and 
the coolest thing that happened out of that was it forced me to not just joke around with this stuff because we had been having tons of fun. We were very satirical. We were making fun of almost everything. Um, and the school got fed up and, you know, ultimately the administration wins. Um, and they, and they threw me out. And the coolest thing that happened was my parents found out on the news. My dad said, Hey, look, the school's calling us. They said, get you out of here. So we're coming, you know, you can't keep stirring things up like this. And I said, look, dad, I love you, but I'm not leaving. I've got to finish this. Um, you know, you can come drive out here. You can watch what we're doing. But if worse comes, push comes to shove, I'll hitchhike across the country and go do something else. Um, and it, it really, you know, at that point, I realized I can kind of do what I want at this point. I don't, I'm not beholden to my parents' money. I'm not beholden to the school. Um, and I really had to finish that job. And because we did and we made it this, this uh, fairly substantial story, um, I was in a competitive, I was trying to get an internship at the American Enterprise Institute in D.C., which was very competitive. It's a, kind of a celebrity think tank. And, uh, and I was, it turns out I was competing against a kid from Stanford, and I should not have won the internship. But the person that I got the internship was Suzanne Garment, who used to be the op-ed page editor for the Wall Street Journal. And she was doing a book on scandal. She needed a fact checker as an intern. And because I was having my own scandal, because I had put <laughs> it in the news, I got this really hard-to-get competitive internship, wow. which turned out to be you know, very, very helpful to me later in life. And, um, and so I think you know, part of the, I think the message there is you, know, you don't have to you don't have to piss off the administration the way that I did. I, I definitely pushed boundaries and limits further than they needed to be pushed. But at that time for me, it was really important because I was also testing the limits of what does all this mean? There's all this, you know, this, there's all this um, unnecessary bureaucracy and structure around our, our spirituality that is called religion. And a lot of it's just complete bullshit, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of it is not helping people. A lot of it is holding people back from their best selves under the guise of protection. And, and for me and for my nature and my sp- I had to break out of that. And that was kind of the impetus that allowed me to kind of break free of it and kind of separate, um, I would say, kind of the, the, the true essence of, of, you know, the power in the universe, the spirit in the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, from all of these constructs that people had been building around it to sell it to other people. And so that was kind of a big seminal kind of release for me where all of a sudden I was able to create these, these help, very healthy boundaries with my, my parents who I love dearly and we get along well. It allowed me to really understand, I think, my faith and my relationship to the, you know, the ultimate power in the universe. And it kind of gave me that foundation that I could build on for everything else. And without having gone to such a restrictive place to really be able to push the big red buttons and the things that were obviously wrong and, and, and holding most people back, I wouldn't have been able to get out of it. Sometimes you need to put yourself in an environment where you have to fight in order to realize what's worth fighting for. And uh, so that was, that was a big, kind of a big breakthrough for me. And it, gave, it launched me into some really neat opportunities. I ended up finishing college a year later um, at a sister school. But, um, you know, that was kind of the, one of the first big breakthroughs for me that really pushed me well past my comfort zone into deep fear, mm-hmm. but also showed me what I was capable of in ways that I probably wouldn't have seen if I hadn't have gotten caught in some of those, some of those, uh, some of those things. Let's take a quick break and thank our friends at Advisor, who are the sponsors for our next quarter of The Unmistakable Creative. At the beginning of the episode, I know I talked about the app, and what the app basically does is allow you to access sound bites from 
hundreds of experts in thousands of different areas. There's short sound bites on storytelling, on communication, on presentations, and it's like having access to former unmistakable creative guests in short sound bites on a playlist. So imagine being able to go through a playlist and have the best things you've ever heard on the unmistakable creative boiled down to three minutes. So definitely check out the app. And now let's get back to the show. So there's, there's so many interesting things here. Uh, but you know, I want to go back to, uh, an earlier part of the conversation, you know, we're talking about, you know, what do you want, which a lot of people don't know. Uh, and, and, you know, so there's two questions. One, you mentioned getting clarity around what you want. So I'm curious, you know, how you figure that out and find that out. And then you talked about putting mechanisms in place mm-hmm. to getting us to that. So effectively, I guess what I am asking is to tie those questions into one bigger question, which is how do you build a foundation to become your best self? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I wish that there was a, <laughs> wish there was a, Simple answer, like a, D, you know, a <laughs> DIY kit you could just buy off the internet and do it at home. Um, I, I, th- I think ultimately, so there was a point in my life, I was in between, I was, I've been a serial entrepreneur, um, I was in between two big projects and, and not in a great way uh, because of a founder that had really done some, some, some bad things and um, that I was unaware of. It was, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of in the middle of my story, but um, I was, I was, uh, I was friends with uh, a guy I went to church with actually up in Seattle where I was a, had been a chief technology officer um, in my late 20s. A guy that I went to church with up there, uh, was uh, he was the CEO of Coinstar at the time, and he had gone to Stanford Business School. And one of his professors was Jim Collins, you know, famous. He had written, you know, at that time he, was, he just had come out with Built to Last. I don't think Good to Great had come out yet. In fact, I'm sure it hadn't. Um, and, and I read, I think I'd read Built to Last. And I was a fan of Jim Collins anyways. Um, I read his Inc. Magazine interviews for sure. And he put me in touch with Jim because I was at this point of like, what do I do now? Like I've, I've really had a fast rise, but I'm in a hot, but a bit of a pickle because this last company I was at, um, you know, had a, a kind of horrific failure because of the founder. And it makes me look bad, even though I wasn't associated with his problems. Um, and what Jim Collins, he, it was before he'd come out with, with Good to Great. And he sent me an email. We had kind of an email conversation. And he, he, he shared with me what became his hedgehog concept, which is, he said, look, there's there's you know, Venn diagram, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's how we think about the world, I think, a lot of times. But if you look at what you're passionate about, the things that you love doing, that's one circle. If you take another circle and overlap it, and it's the things that he says you can be best in the world at, I think, I don't know if I can be best in the world at anything, but I think a better way to think about it is what is what's your comparative advantage? What do people tell you generally that you're good at consistently? Right, and then I think the third thing that you want to overlap on that is how do you make money? Um, because otherwise, it's just hobbies. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's great, it's fun. You might enjoy it. You might get great, you know, internal value out of it. But if people aren't buying it, then you know, it's really not. It's really not. Um, it's really not a, a, a an opportunity, a true opportunity. Um, you're not adding value to other people's lives, essentially. And so what what I think. Um, what I think that did for me is, and you know, where those three circles intersect, what you're, what you're passionate about, what, you, what you're best in the world at, what you can make money at, where those three circles intersect, he calls that, that's your hedgehog concept. That's the thing you want to put all your effort and energy behind. Mm-hmm. Challenges, that's really hard to find. Yeah, yeah um, without a doubt. We've dissected that endlessly on this show, and I'm telling yeah. you, there's still people who I don't think have found it. Right. Well, so. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I would say the first, and that's why you know when somebody said, "Well, what would you tell your 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 distant past self?" You know, your young younger self. Um, you know, frankly, for me, I'm a very strong existentialist. I think. You know, I don't believe in grand plans. I think it's good to do planning. Mm-hmm. I think it's good to put your best effort into thinking where things might go. But I'm a much bigger fan of having is on um, of the relationships that you work with, particularly the older you get, having more and more known quantities that you can you can uh, engage to help you execute ideas, mm-hmm. because the strategy will almost always fall apart, in my opinion, in my experience. Um, <laughs> You know, the strategy just gets beat to shit in the world once you put it out there. Yeah. And I think what, what ultimately works it are people 
who have you know an infinite creative ability to adapt to the environment around them and figure out solutions that do work. Mm-hmm. Um, the strategy might get you money. The strategy might get you the right people on board. The strategy might get you different resources to go execute. But ultimately, it's the execution where you win or lose. And I think today we see that. I mean, in my company, we see this more and more. Well, used to be, <laughs> we just sold our company in January, so I, 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 uh, I'm now an executive. You know, the company that bought us. But the, um, um, you know, and I'm running this company, running our business globally still. But the uh, the thing that we've seen over the last decade is that social media, in particular, ninety percent of our communication comes over social media. Now, I, I built an energy drink brand that you know um, that basically has. Uh, you know, it, 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 we work very closely with millions of young entrepreneurs around the world, and the thing that that we see constantly is emails practically dead for us. I mean, yes, for corporate inter, inter- corporate communications, we use email, mm-hmm. but ninety percent of our daily communication comes from social media. What that means is we can test ideas constantly, and for us, tactics really almost fall out of. Um, our, I'm sorry, strategy almost falls out of our tactics. Strategy falls out of all these constant tactical tests that we're doing. And you start to see trends. And you, those trends that you, you are very existential trends, trends tied to our existence, mm-hmm. are, the, are the things tied to our emotion, tied to our, our feeling, our experience. Those trends are what drive our strategies. They kind of dictate our strategies. And it's, you know, to me, it comes back to another one of my favorite Jim Collins concepts, which is when you run your life on, on values and mechanisms rather than grand strategies, it's the difference between being an ICBM and being a cruise missile. Mm-hmm. An ICBM has this grand strategy. It's, it's got a, a, a end, it already knows where the end point is before it takes off. It goes up, it sees it, it comes down, and it hits it. problem is it's got all this exposure that whole route. What a cruise missile does is very different. A cruise missile has values that it operates against. And it has no idea where the target is until mm-hmm. it's literally right on top of it because it's flying under the wires. It's flying so low it has to tweak against all of the little environmental terrain things that it's, that it's bumping into as it's flying along. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is the target, and bam, it explodes. And it doesn't even see the target until it's right there. And I mm-hmm. think that is exactly how an existentialist lives and behaves. You have to have values. You have to have mechanisms that force you to to kind of – to shift and tweak and, and maneuver around those values. And you don't always know where you're headed. And that's okay. You have to get very comfortable with that. What you have to get good at is learning how to be comfortable maneuvering with your values, you know, flying by instrument and not by sight. Mm. And that's where I think you ultimately, when you find those targets, you're like, holy cow, that was awesome. And I had no idea I was going to do that. And to me, that's what makes life really fascinating, mysterious, wonderful, and ultimately it's been very, a very successful strategy for me. Um, but that's not what they teach in business school. No, I've been to business school. They don't teach yeah. any of that. I, I want to go back to something you said here, uh, which has been of real interest to me lately because we've been doing so much work personally, uh, you know, business partner and I, around values. Uh, you mentioned, you know, living according to your values is like having a cruise missile. One of the things that I think is really interesting, especially because you brought up the business school example, is that I don't think anybody really has clarity on their values. At least you're not taught how to discover what you are value in business school. Because I can tell you, I valued prestige and, you know, things that looked good on a resume. Yeah, don't matter. No, they don't. Well, one, I wasn't good at any of them, Uh, which clearly (laughs) there's something out of alignment there. And so I'm curious, you know, from your own experience, I mean, how did you uncover your, you know, the values that matter to you in your life and how do other people do that? 
Um, you know, I think for a lot of us, it comes from, you know, we're, we're, I mean, it starts with what we're told they should be. And then mm-hmm. you test, you know, hopefully, hopefully, and this is where, you know, I think it's really important to test anything somebody tries to sell you. But hopefully people test those and say, is this, you know, is this really true or not? Um, my, I have two boys. I have a son who's almost 21 and one who's almost 18. And uh, one's in college. One's going to be in college next year. And, and I travel a lot. And they're busy. And, uh, but one of the things that, you know, we, I love Hemingway as, uh, you know, as a writer. And one of the things that Hemingway, when he talks about learning about how he would write, is he would say you start with one true thing and then you build on that. And so I have this thing I do with my boys where we text one, two, one true thing to each other, hopefully, you know, once or twice a week, you know, I wish I could say I did it every day. We, 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 don't, we aren't that consistent about it, but we try and, you know, send each other one true thing. And the reason is to get each of us thinking about the fact that there are true things and there are true things that matter to us that we connect with in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the, I think the only way you find out what the true things are is by acting in the world and doing things and not getting too caught up in fixing true things, but allowing truth to be fluid, allowing truth to move and progress with time through space. Um, I love what, again, I'm going to go back to Jim Collins because he's, I think he's just brilliant. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that, that he talks about is um, if you're, when you're trying to figure out what your values are, uh, he says, what if you had $200 million, but you only had five years left to live? So he says, one, you know, you don't have to make financial decisions anymore. You've got plenty of money. You can buy whatever you want. Right. But time's running out. So all of a sudden, you know, if, you, if it was just $200 million, you know, a lot of the young guys would be like, I want a Ferrari or whatever the hot car is today. Um, but when it's five years left to live, you start to say, well, wait a minute. Ferrari isn't nearly as important as taking care of my parents or giving to my church or the poor or, you know, whatever your cause, the environment, whatever your cause is mm-hmm. that really you think is fundamentally important and, and is, has lasting value, hopefully. Um, the Ferrari may still be on the list. There's nothing wrong with fast cars and, you know, rock and roll <laughs> and, and partying. But it's at the end of the day, hopefully there's a lot more to life than that. Yeah. And, you know, that's how you celebrate the great things that happen in life. And so I think what... Um, what, what, what he does there is he says, one, actually make that list. Like, seriously sit down and write that list. What is it? And then, two, put it somewhere where it's constantly in front of you so that every time you're making daily decisions, mm-hmm. you're, you're asking yourself, is this decision that I'm about to make, you know, what car are you going to buy? What house are you Where are you going to live? Who are you going to associate with? Where are you going to go to school? What kind of job do you want? Do you want to want that job because you want to buy that company, because you want to start a company like that, or because this is what you want to do with the rest of your life? Do these decisions move you closer to the things you actually want that matter in life, or do they move you further away? Because if they move you further away, it's the wrong decision. If they move you closer, it's the right decision. And one, most people never make the list. They really have no idea what they want in life. They just are going to take what life gives them, and that doesn't usually end very well. And secondly, if you do make the list, a lot of people don't put it in front of them every day, and they're not going, wait a minute, does this actually give me what, is this this going to move me closer to the things I really do truly want? Because either you will live deliberately, and you will probably wake up one morning, and whether you have $200 million or not, you'll say, holy shit, this is awesome. How did I end up here? I can't believe the life I have. Hmm. Or you'll wake up one morning because you just let life give you what it decided you were worth. And you'll go, man, this isn't that great. This kind of sucks. I wish I had made these other choices. I wish I had tried some things I didn't. I wish I had been a little bit more deliberate about the life, the limited short life that I have. 
And, and ultimately, you know, I think that's as simple as it is, but also as complicated as it is. And it just, it takes being deliberate. It takes, you know, actually spending some time, you know, reflecting and thinking about what we truly want. And then it takes putting, you know, serious mechanisms in our life that force us to delay gratification, that force us to make hard choices when we'd rather make easy choices, mm. that force us to tell the truth when it's easier to tell lies. And if we're willing to do that and do it consistently, you know, it's not always easier. Sometimes those short-term decisions are really hard and, and, and uncomfortable, but we ultimately end up with a lot of great friends and a pretty fantastic life. I love that. You know, it's funny. I probably will have to go back and replay that entire monologue over and over again <laughs> uh, because there's just so much depth there. Uh you know, I, I want to ask you about something that we haven't really talked about uh, in our conversation so far. I'm curious uh, if there have been any really, really challenging sort of, you know, rock bottom moments in your life where you just couldn't see any hope for your future and, and you know, how you got out of them. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I've had some horrible ones. Um, I actually went bankrupt once. I had to file Chapter 13, um, which is a way that you repay your creditors. But you get you know you get you get some relief uh, from the courts so that they can't keep pressing you, um, and uh, and I had a pl- at a point where I, I had risen really fast in a series of career moves, and had the company I was at had cratered, and I was at a point where I didn't even know how I was going to buy groceries, um, wow. which is you know, we had two little boys and it was it was it was really tough times, and I could always go live at my parents' house, I guess, but that was in my mind never really an option. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first one, uh, I was in my early twenties. I had, um, had a, had a PR company, marketing company, had, uh, been, had some moderate success and I had, uh, with some partners had started a biotech and pharmaceutical company in Venezuela where we could get, um, certification for Latin America, which, which would basically rubber stamp every place. That's when Caldera was still president before Chavez ruined the country. And, um, and the interesting thing was, um, and it was very corrupt at that time, and that's what Chavez was trying to fix, and he became more corrupt than everybody else. But the, uh, ultimately, you know, what, what ended up happening was we got embezzled, we lost all of our money, and, and I was on the line for more money than, uh, than I had. And, um, you know, basically the value of a nice home in St. Helena, California, where we lived at the time, that we didn't have. Um, and so it, it put us in a very, very difficult position. And um, I had a car repossessed, had all these kind of awful things happen. Um, and, and, you know, it happened through a series of things I didn't foresee. Uh, you know, it happened through a coup d'etat in a, in, a, in a Latin American country. When you're in your 20s, those things don't really register in your business plan. Sure. Um, it happened through an embezzlement at a bank where we had joint signatures. And I didn't realize in Venezuela at the time you could just go in and bribe the teller. And the teller would make more money giving you the bribe than, than they'd make in a year anyway. So they didn't care. Um, there's just all these weird things that, you know, it's an environment I wasn't familiar with and I didn't realize how unfamiliar with it I was and it ended up being kind of catastrophic. Um, and I remember calling my dad at that point because we were in heavy debt and I had a car repossessed. I needed to get in that car. I, of course, had no credit. And I said, Dad, you know, I'm in this really tough spot. Could you help me out? Could you, could you bail me out? I'll pay you back. And the best thing he did for me at that time was he said, you know, he said, I think it's really important because I was, I was a, you know, Look, I'd been a cowboy, right? I had gotten kicked out of college, finished another school. I was, you know, was very good at PR. I was a good salesperson. Um, 
but I was also very cavalier. And, and the good thing that my father did to me at that time was he made me, he made me address risk and address the choices I had made and figure out a solution to the problems I had created. Mm. I could blame you know, the government, I could blame the economy, I could blame every, everything I wanted to, but that wouldn't solve me and that wouldn't solve the problem that I had created because none of those people were going to come to my aid. I had to learn to come to my own aid when the environment didn't, didn't work out for me. And, um, and the, the good thing about this, you know, ultimately, obviously, I've figured out some solutions. And, and part of what I had to learn to do in those situations was, for me, the thing that works best is to sit down and start making lists, right? First, you have to stop the hemorrhaging. Where are we spending money that we can shut it down now? Right. Um, that's the simple first step on any turnaround, whether it's a personal turnaround or whether it's a business turnaround. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing was, you know, what are the list of real opportunities that I have, friends I can call up, you know, businesses that maybe I haven't done enough for, places where I could step in and actually deliver value and, and earn value back. Um, and so I, and then, and then I'd start basically knocking on those doors. Some doors open, some doors close. And then you start looking at the doors that open and, and sifting through which of those doors are the most going to be the most productive use of your time given the, the goals that you've got to hit in the near term. Um, and, and I think that, I know that may seem a little simplistic, um, but what it, what it does tell you is I think a couple of things is one, burning bridges doesn't help anybody. Building long-term value with clients, customers, friends, et cetera, it's probably one of the most important things any of us can do in life mm-hmm. because that becomes one of the most valuable resources we'll ever have, whether you ever need to call on that card or not. Right. Um, it's just good to have great friends. It's good to have great relationships, whether you're getting paid by them, whether you need to, to a favor from them or not. It's really important to not burn bridges unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other part is I've always worked multiple projects, multiple jobs, literally multiple careers, I do not believe in a nine-to-five economy. I think it's the biggest uh, lie that you can tell a young person is, you know, go get a job. Finding, having a job is fine, but having one job is a waste of time. Wow. You need to, you need to always be doing something else. Work for, do free work for somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, go intern someplace. Uh, you know, if you have to wait tables to afford the internship in the summer, do it. Because the best thing you can do, like if you're in college, I think one of the best things you can do is find the best internships you can get. Forget about what an internship pays. doesn't matter. Find the best relationship that you can develop and cultivate while you're in college because you will never have that opportunity again. Oh, yeah. And if you have to wait a job at night to have that internship during the day, do it. You'll, you'll, never, you'll never be sorry that you did that. Biggest mistake I made was doing the complete opposite of that in college. And I had a world of opportunities at my disposal. I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's recognizing that the short-term dollar doesn't really matter. Yeah. I mean, You've got to feed yourself. You've got to pay rent. Cut your costs as low as you can. And don't worry about having a fancy car, particularly in college. But, mm-hmm. in fact, don't have a car unless you really need one. But I think, <laughs> right, especially in cities, there's plenty of ways to get around without cars. But I think yeah. the, um, you know, the biggest thing is, is I mean, I used, to, I used to go do gardening for the head of the philosophy department. Um, <laughs> Not because, and it wasn't even for the money. It was so I could spend time with him. Because uh-huh. I realized, you know, Arthur Holmes was brilliant and he wouldn't be around forever. And I had this great, unique opportunity at that point to spend time with him. You know, he needed a birdhouse put in the ground. He needed 
I don't, whatever, a lawn, you know, he would come out and do it. We'd talk and we'd, we'd create a relationship that, you know, extended beyond the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would babysit, babysit for one of my political theory professors. They would pay me in like banana bread loaves or something. Wonderful family, you know, young, young philosophy of political, I'm sorry, political philosophy professor, mm-hmm. brilliant mind. And the fact that I built a personal relationship with him allowed me to see beyond, you know, what I learned in the classroom into how that his, his ideas affected his whole world. And I think that, that kind of that 360 degree view really helped me understand, you know, one, that ideas have consequences, not just in business or, or academics, but also in personal life. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, that there's usually a reason people believe the way they do. Whether you agree with them or not, um, there's, a, there's a guy, there's a Korean gentleman who owns a liquor store in Laguna Beach and people have been really upset about how he treats customers and, you know, they were going, there was this long thread on Facebook about, you know, how badly he treats everybody and, and, and he does, he's, he's a bit of an ass. My question on the thread was, okay, I get it, we've all had these bad experiences with this person, why does he behave this way? Mm-hmm. This, this isn't normal for a business owner to treat customers poorly. What's causing this person to act this way towards us? He probably doesn't even know that he's doing this or he doesn't realize it's having the impact that it's having. Has anyone talked to him? Yeah. Right? There was a, there's a guy that used to, this guy Jean-Paul, is a lovely man, um, personal friend of mine now, but he was known kind of in town as the coffee Nazi. Best cof- coffee in town. Mm-hmm. Best, he's a French guy. Best pastries in town, period. But he was known to be... Uh, difficult behind the counter in, in a sometimes a very aggressive way. I used to send my dad in when, I, when he'd come, come visit us and have him order a French, uh, French vanilla latte because um, he would only serve basically a, a, a brevet, you know, a, kind of a cafe au lait type drink. Um, if you went in and asked for something like that, like could I have a soy hazelnut latte or something awful that you know, Starbucks sells, um, his response would always be, you want me to shit in a cup? <laughs> and and you know, I thought it was hilarious, but not everyone had the same tough skin, right? right. Sometimes women would cry, and, and that wasn't always nice. And he didn't realize, I don't think he really realized how, how, what, how other people viewed him until uh-huh. people started taking videos of him and putting it on Facebook. And when he saw himself and what people said about it, it actually changed how he behaved. Hmm. And... And I think that for a lot of people, you know, we have a perspective because we're coming at them from our perspective. We have the eyes that we're viewing them from, but what we're not recognizing is what's behind their eyes, how they're viewing the universe, what's their consciousness. And, and it's easy for us to react and say, you're wrong and I'm right, but we're all wrong in a lot of ways. And I think my question is when someone's behaving in a way that doesn't make any sense and is awful my first fundamental question is why are they behaving this way? And has anyone even talked to them to ask them do you realize what you're doing and why are you doing it? Because a lot of times just by asking those two questions, you break through with people in ways that other people have, have never tried to do. And you can create these, one, you can actually help them change their behavior. But more importantly, you can create these great lasting relationships with people that have much more value than society gives them credit for. Yeah. And I think, you know, fundamentally understanding that, you know, we're all created by something. And we all have, in my opinion, inherent value. And finding that inherent value in each person is really, really important because there is no other animal on the planet that's capable of creating wealth. 
There's no other planet on the uh, animal on the planet that there's symbiotic relationships, but you know animals that benefit each other unknowingly. But there's no other animal on the planet that deliberately goes out to create value for somebody else, hoping that some value comes back to them. That's what makes business human. That's what makes, in my opinion, kind of life worth living. Not not having a business. Sure. But deliberately creating value for other people first before you look for anything back in return. And if we can get good at doing that consistently, I think we can make the world a wonderful place. Man, so much gold. We could talk to you for like hours here. There's, uh, so, you know, I, I want to ask you something, um, and we'll get close to wrapping things up here because I know we've been at, at this for about an hour. Uh, you know, I mean, Dave, you've made and lost, you know, from what I know, lots and lots of money. Uh, so the question for me comes up, is how do you view money? What is your view on wealth? You know, I think the only other person who I've had here that is like made some serious, serious cash, I think it was Nolan Bushnell and it was really interesting. So I'm very, very curious to hear your perspective on this. I mean, for me, money is, um, well, one, it's, let's just start with this like breathing, right? When Mm -hmm. you have plenty of it, you don't think about it. When you don't have much, it's all you can think about. Sure. And, um, I wrote this piece for Sojourners um, last year. We, we launched, you, I have, so I have an energy drink company. It's called Excess Energy Drinks, and we sell it only through Amway. It was part of our, our model, mm-hmm. a very unique, different model. Our drinks are very unique and different in the category. Um, I won't do a big, there's no pitch or sales here. Sure. I'm not trying to get anyone to buy our drinks or join Amway or anything like that. But um, I wrote a piece for Sojourners last year, and um, and it was about our launch in Ukraine because we ended up launching, we've had this a couple times where like we launched in Japan you know, a week or two after the tsunami that, that you know, really in the, in the earthquakes that wrecked Japan, we launched Ukraine three days after the, the February revolution in early March. Um, and I'd been going in it. We, had, we were living in Europe last year, launching 23 markets, my wife and younger son and I. And uh, I'd been going in and out of Ukraine throughout that, that kind of that um, revolution that, that had happened there, which turned into, you know, what is now almost a civil war. And um, I'll be back there this month. But the um, I was I was in there, and uh, I was I was about to go back in a few days after the February Revolution, where the basically the people of Ukraine, uh, you know, the students had started protesting in November uh, because Yanukovych, who was the president, had run on this campaign that he was going to bring in the EU. Um, Putin decided to put a huge, you know offer huge loans to Ukraine if they wouldn't do that so he could have more control over that region. Um, you know, the problem in a corrupt regime is if they take loans, they're going to spend the money and they're not going to pay it back and the company will be even more beholden to Russia. So the people, the students started revolting, the government cracked down, the people of Kiev got very upset and you ended up with literally at one point, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of people in the town center in Maidan Square. And uh, ultimately, and people ended up creating big barricades and, and, and uh, you know, creating their own militias and taking the country back. At the end of that, um, in February, you know, Yanukovych brought in Russian snipers and, and they really started, they, they killed a lot of people. Two of our distributors were killed in Maidan. Um, and so when I was going in three days after that, the, when Yanukovych fled, uh, there was no government, there was no police force. Um, and my wife said, why are you going there? We don't need the money. Um, a friend of mine at, uh, at Amway said to me, you don't have to go in, you know, you can go in later when it's safer. This is unnecessary. I appreciate your enthusiasm, but let's not do this. You're too valuable to us. Uh, or I'd like to believe that he thought that, but you know, the, um, 
what I said to both of them at the time is I said, look, we've got four founding principles on our walls, uh, freedom, family, hope, reward. And when people and any of our distributors anywhere in the world or people who want to join us say, look, I have a right to self-determination. I have a right to free speech, political expression. We either have to support them or we have to take freedom off the wall, particularly when we have a lot to risk, particularly when it could mean, you know, it could put us in physical jeopardy, let alone financial jeopardy. Because I said, that's what values are. They're what define us. They're what drive us. They're when they, they, they really matter when we have a lot to lose, not when it's easy or comfortable to say, oh, yeah, I believe in freedom. And I was posting as I was going. It was really profound. I don't know if you've ever been through a revolution, but it was, it was, it was tremendously profound. Being, I was in, Maidan, in and out of Maidan. Um, I did uh, security tours with some of our distributors who were, you know, because basically these private you know, citizens were, were keeping the streets safe for their own fellow countrymen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and at one point, uh, I was posting pictures, and it was really profoundly moving for me to participate in that level of, of freedom. A friend of mine said on Facebook, he said, what are you doing selling sodas in a revolution? And I, I kind of laughed and I said, look, I, I get it. it. It looks like I'm here to make some money and profiteer or something. I said, I don't, I don't even know if we're going to make money in Ukraine, frankly. It's, you know, <laughs> this is a huge mess. And we decided to launch regardless of whether we're going to make money because that's not why we're doing it. I said, this is how it works for me. I wrote an article for, in Sojourners last year called uh, – uh, uh, what was it called? Uh, selling sodas, selling sodas in a revolution, or selling sodas in a in a revolution, the cure for human bondage, or something to that effect. Mm. And and what I said was, look, there's a hierarchy of freedoms in the world. It starts at financial freedom, the the right to associate with other people around ways that allow us to feed ourselves. And if we don't, you know, my business is all about not only about selling energy drinks, but it's about putting an opportunity in every can where. Anybody who wants to can start a business with us. It doesn't require, you know, really any money. It really just requires desire and effort. And if they put that desire and effort in, they get to own their own sales organization. They get to own their own business. And we'll support them every step of the way. We're really clear. We're not trying to sell anybody on this. They have to pick themselves. You know, I say, look, you may not be chosen by the right school, the right career, the right profession, the right team. I don't care. This is the one place you get to pick yourself. The only challenge is you got to pick yourself. Mm-hmm. And if you do pick yourself, we'll meet you halfway. And so I said, look, first, of, first and foremost, if we can't help people feed themselves and have that first and, and, and really own that first level of freedom, financial freedom, none of the other ones matter. Because if, if you can't feed yourself, you can't afford social freedom, political freedom, and spiritual freedom. You'll take whatever's given to you. That's the difference between Crimea, where no one has anything, where they're just looking for the, the richest master, Mm-hmm. And Kiev, where you're basically you have a lot of people who are university educated, you have a lot of people who who own businesses, but where we're living in such corruption that even if you built a business, let's say to half a million dollars in value, someone would come to you, a strong man would come to you and say, "Hey, I like your business. I'll pay you a hundred thousand dollars for it, or I'll just take it from you and kill you." And when you have that level of corruption, no one wants to invest in your country. No one wants to invest in your business. There is no way forward. There is no path out. And so the first level is how do, we, how do we help create, you know, I mean, I was doing events with tens of thousands of people at them because people were desperate for that first level of freedom. Mm-hmm. Once you have that first level of freedom, now all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, well, if I can feed myself, if, I don't have to, if I'm not beholden to anyone and how I choose to live my life, how do I want to live? Mm-hmm. Who do I want to associate with socially? 
how do I want to have my government run? Do I want Yanukovych? Do I want somebody else? What does a, a the, what is the proper organization of government for people who aren't beholden to other people, who aren't beholden to kings in a serfdom? And then I think ultimately it's really all about why are we here? What is my relationship to whatever the power is that created that singularity in this constantly expanding universe that we live in? And ultimately, if you can, you know, I don't think there's easy answers to, to hardly any of those questions. Sure. But to me, it's the wrestling with those questions that makes life fundamentally interesting. That's what the, that's why I really favor this kind of this whole philosophy of experience. It's it's wrestling with those questions that ultimately give us answers that are worth that are worth talking about. And and it's not about being right, right? Those those answers will hopefully change over time. Hopefully, there's a progression of truth that happens in your life. But it's the wrestling with them that 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 basically forces meaning into your life. Mm-hmm. And even though the environment may change, even though the environment may be, be chaotic, even the, though the environment may be all destructive, it, it destroys all of us in the end. Nobody gets out alive. It's our ability to put meaning into that chaos and destruction that creates order in the universe. And I think that's why we're here. I think that's what humans are for. Amazing. Uh, well, Dave, I have one last question for you. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? <laughs> unmistakable. Um, I think it's that they are authentic to what they were made to be. Hmm. Well, Dave, this has been really, really profound and thought-provoking. Uh, one of those conversations that I feel like is going to have to be replayed multiple times to really get the the juice out of everything you said. I can't thank you enough for... Uh, taking the time to join us and, and share your story and your journey and, and your insights with our listeners. No, it, hey, it really energizes me. And, uh, you know, if you ever want to talk about business, we can do that too. <laughs> well, this was fantastic. And uh, for everybody right. listening, we will wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that, and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.